0: Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host Josh Lindsey from the Movie Proposal Podcast, and with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor.
1: Hey, Josh, how you doing?
0: Good, Christian, how are you?
1: Good, thank you. Happy to be here, happy to be alive. Trying to be happy actually. It's kind of a, you know, kind of a down day for me.
0: Well, it's cold, it's winter, it's January say no more <laughs>
2: you have and to spend us. some time with us i just uh...
1: <laughs> i know actually i'm feeling much better already <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and uh, if you didn't recognize that voice that's our trusty dusty research extraordinaire, button pushing guy living in his basement jason Rugg. <laughs> hey there and we have a very special guest with us today michelle phoenix who is the writer and narrator of for grueling glory Michelle, thank you for being with us today.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: And so we're going to hear a little bit about grueling glory. Um, if you don't know, you know in a minute, but if you don't know who Michelle is, she works full time for Mission Go, helping expat missionary families, uh, primarily working with kids. So want to hear about that too. So thank you again for being with us, Michelle. But before we jump in to Michelle's story, Christian, what is going on? in the film world
1: yeah so today it is january 6th 2022 and we are still trying to um get our head around this new branding that we're doing so uh if you're just catching up with us we um have just rebranded under a new umbrella called documentary first so our podcast uh, has sort of charted the course for us and uh, I started off, you know, really actually trying to be an actress and ended up being a filmmaker uh, with The Girl Who War Freedom. Many people know this already. And, um, but in the course of that, discovered that I really did love making films and had a knack for it. Uh, so out of that grew this other little short that we're talking about today, Grueling Glory, and we have two other actually three other projects in the works right now the brave dutch uh the um documentary series as well as another one called dear donna which i've talked about a long time ago it's really really in the pre-development stage but um it is a documentary about Donna Reed and the GIs from World War II that used to write her letters. So we've got a bunch of projects uh, in the crockpot right now, and we figured we wanted to be able to talk about all of them on social media and on our websites and things like that. So uh, we've now been trying to do the reorganization in our company, and that's tedious things like Reorganizing all of our Trello work world, uh, our Google drives and our Slack communication channels and things like that stuff that's not fun at all, uh, which probably has contributed to my winter blues along with battling COVID still so Um, So yeah, not a lot of exciting stuff still happening, but, um, you know, and then we did get some disappointing news yesterday I was really surprised about and that is that grueling glory was not accepted into the Beaufort Film Festival in South Carolina, which I was really shocked about. That's the film festival that was um, in February last year. The girl who wore freedom won the uh, duty and honor category. We also won the audience award and made a lot of really good friends down there. And I thought for sure I'd be a shoe in with grueling glory, Um, but that was not to be. So um, yeah, so that was kind of a bummer, but uh, I will, uh, there is good news on the grueling glory front. Um, I was glad Michelle, when we connected about you coming on here, you asked me about sort of what was going on with grueling glory so that i could um take a step back and kind of look at things and so when i went into my film festival profile um you know and did dug around i realized that we had been accepted into 5 um five film festivals and that um we you know and that was more than i thought i thought it The time it was like three. So let me tell everybody what those are to begin with. So, um, grueling glory has been accepted into the Mediterranean film festival can it was accepted into Scorpius fest, which is in park city, Utah uh, into Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest, where it is a nominee for the best short documentary. That's exciting. That's going to be at the end of January. Um, we were accepted into the Berlin Short Awards, and we were a semi-finalist, and we were accepted into the Lonely Wolf Wolf International Film Festival, and we were a semi-finalist there. So the news is not all bad. Um, I do think that there have been, um, you know some rejections like i said that i that i was surprised about um one of them is the Bufort one um we were also um not accepted to the channel international film festival we also won an award there last year um we didn't get into the montgomery film festival sadly we did not get into sundance what a shock uh the Spokane international film festival and the new jersey film festival we did not get into so um however we have about 55 um, other film festival um things where we are still being considered. So, um, you know, it's just the beginning. We'll see what happens next. Um, but it's kind of looking like a a mixed bag at the moment,
0: which is normal,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when you look at um if I, if I go to the Girl Who wore Freedom, I haven't done this in a long time, but uh if I go, you can go on your dashboard and you can look at sort of like what your percentage acceptance rates are. Um and so the selection rate for the Girl Who wore Freedom, um it looks like we had 151 total submissions, 33 selections, and so we had a 23% selection rate. And that's actually really pretty high. Um, and I'm looking now at grueling glory right now. We've had 63 total submissions, five selections and 52 pending with a 45% selection rate. So as of right now, we're looking pretty good. If you compare it to the girly war freedom. Yeah.
0: It it makes a difference when it's, when you have perspective, right? Yeah. Everything's relative.
1: For sure. For sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's good. All right. And Netflix hasn't called you yet that's what everyone really cares about
1: where is Netflix <laughs> I know you know um I have not heard from from Virgil films at all, so I don't really know what they've heard, although I do think if they'd have gotten a, a, a call from Netflix, I would have heard about them pretty quickly um so I am still waiting to hear back about that um and Which,
0: you know that's that, that, that's gonna take a while. I mean you know they they all took the month of December off. they're getting back they're trying to get caught with emails and things like that. I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you heard in here till like February March. To be quite honest, but um, not that I know anything. It's just human nature, right? Right.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting though. I gotta say, I I uh, ran across a film um, two nights ago on Netflix called Radium Girls. Radium Girls is a um, a narrative feature film that I'm aware of because my mentor Neil Aikens from the Stony Brook School. Um, He is an incredible theater actor and this was his very one and only film role. And I learned about this like three years ago, he told me he had done it and I started researching it to find out if it had gotten distribution or anything like that. So I've been aware of it now for a couple of years and saw that it was supposed to be released and it finally just showed up on Netflix. And I watched it last night. And although Neil's performance was fabulous and I was so proud of him, Uh, the film itself, you know, really was just not great, but here it is on Netflix. And that's true for so many Netflix films. And I'm, and I'm like, you know, I just don't understand why we would have a difficult time getting on Netflix with the quality of our film and how well it's done. It's just totally befuddling to my mind is what Netflix decides to take and pay money for and what they don't.
0: Well, it's like, And I I don't know how they operate either, but if you ever go to Redbox, which I haven't done in a while, but Redbox has some of the most random movies in the world, and you can just tell they're terrible, (laughs) but apparently it keeps them in business. And so there's got to be some matrix, some thought process, you know, that obviously they want good films, Netflix does, but they have a lot because they want to offer because you you know because it, it can be um i don't know what the word is but it can be tailored to someone so if people like to watch a lot of b films you know horrible horror films or stupid documentary or whatever they can just put it on there and, and it'll be tailored to an audience and make money off of that so i don't think it's just we only put good films on netflix
2: There's also a lot of um, bargaining that goes on in those sorts of things. So a lot of times if you know Virgil Films has a pack of 10 films, and they go these five are fantastic, but you only get those five if you also take these five that nobody else wants. Like that's usually how a lot of these things actually get them distributed if they're not selling, they're not doing well, is usually you package them with something else or you bundle them with something else and say, you can only have this stuff if you also take this stuff. So that's oftentimes Sounds like
0: always- the government how laws get passed, you know? Pretty much, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> you only get the girl of war freedom if you build a bridge in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah,
1: so that's about all the news I have to report about that.
0: Okay. Well, hey, let's shift gears. We have a very special guest today, Michelle. Thanks for being patient. Uh so you why don't you tell us first before we dive into grueling glory about what you do? So you said you work with expats, working with kids. Tell, tell us about your job.
3: Yeah, I was um the reason that I met Christian is that I was born and raised in France and I'm fluent in French. And the reason that was is that my parents were missionaries in France for 37 years. So Um, I um, grew up in the French school system, uh, then went to Wheaton College and decided uh, to go back to the high school for missionaries kids that I had taught at for 20 years. As an adult, I had graduated from there as well. And um, While I was there, started to really realize that this this unique people group of missionaries kids or MKs or TCKs, third culture kids, that they have some really specific strengths and some really specific challenges, the latter of which are often overlooked. Um, by adults who can't fully relate to what it is to grow up in a ministry culture between worlds. So I left BFA Black Forest Academy, that school, after teaching there for 20 years and launched this global work um, helping parents to understand their students, helping teachers of third culture kids to understand um, the kids that they're teaching better, helping organizations that send families overseas to prepare them better, and especially to welcome them home in a helpful way because that is. Um, a capital T traumatic experience for many of these families. So that's my life day in, day out um, in many different ways. Um, a lot of that can be found on my website, michellephoenix.com. A lot of articles and resources that I'm creating and consulting with parents all around the world. I love what I do. That's
1: awesome. you, are, you are uniquely crafted to do that, Michelle. I mean, I think it's um, your history and your background is so interesting and eclectic and perfect for what you're doing. And and um, it made it perfect for you to help us as well. I mean, I just love it okay. that you were able to jump on and join our totally different and random
3: <laughs> task. Random. Random is the right word. It came yeah. out of nowhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, but it was great. We were so happy to have you here. Anyway, sorry, go ahead, Josh. What was your next question?
3: Well, I,
0: I, I don't know, uh, Christian or Michelle, either one of you can answer this question. Just first bring remind everyone what grueling glory is. And then I like to hear about how Michelle got involved in that.
1: Yeah. Let me take this one. So grueling glory is a nine minute short that we, um, we filmed at the same time that we filmed the girl who Wore freedom. And I did this in a really non-traditional way. Typically when a first time filmmaker does something, they release a short first as proof of concept and figuring out how to do it all. And then they'll release the longer version later. We kind of did it in the reverse. I didn't even know how things were supposed to be done, of course. Um, but as we were going through this project, um, we were trying to raise money and awareness for the girl who wore freedom. And we were asking people to write blog, um, posts in order to put on our website so that we could share on social media and begin engaging an audience. And, um, not only does she work with third culture kids, but Michelle is also a writer. Um, and she can tell you as well about the books that she's written, but she's an accomplished writer. And so we tapped into her uh, gifts to write a blog post for us. And um, she had written this one, um, Grueling Glory March to Carrington about one of her experiences um, in the D-Day, you know, filming uh, event that we did. and. When I read it, it was very moving, and it was interesting to me because it took, um, you know, whereas *The Girl Who Wore Freedom* looked at all of the events in the sum total of that, and and what that said, Michelle had one unique, independent experience in one event, um, and that's what this story was about. And uh, so I liked it that it was just a singular experience, and you could do a deep dive into this event. And when I read it, I thought we have enough extra footage that we could turn this little piece into a short, um, and, you know, let people meet one of our heroes, you know, in particular, uh, and, and learn a little bit more about this very dramatic, engaging event called the Exodus, uh, in Carenton. So, uh, I also thought that it would keep our team, you know, uh, I don't know, developing their skills. And if we were able to win some awards and do well on the circuit, we would be able to add to our resume. So that was a whole another reason of being able to put it out there, show that our company is continuing to work and to do things and not just sitting idle. So, um, so yeah, in short, that's what grueling glory is eventually the history for this film. It really, um, will do its film festival run and then probably live on our website um, as a nice little homage to Tom Rice and to our translator, Michelle Phoenix.
3: And a little postscript to that is that I was actually, I think it was a year ago, I was in quarantine in Canada for 14 days and hardcore quarantine. Um, and I was just going to take this article that I had written and all the pictures I had taken on that day and make it into a little PowerPoint MacGyver it into something worth looking at. And then I wrote to Christian and asked if I could use some of the music from our original movie. And that's when you said, well, wait a minute, how about we collaborate on this and do it up good and use moving pictures and and music as well. So, and and Jeff Kurtnacher actually wrote the music um, for the short as well.
1: Yeah, he wrote, he wrote new music for the short. We're going to have him on next week to talk about that. Uh, I feel like if you just say, hey to Jeff, hey, can you cook up something to go with this? He'll be like, sure, here you go. I mean, he's always just so great.
3: He's amazing. He also did the the soundtrack for my book release um, video trailer. um, And I wrote to him. And about two days later, I had this beautiful kind of military inspired music to go along with a book trailer.
1: Yeah, he's incredible. We love you, Jeff.
3: (laughs) (laughs) anyway so yeah that's it
1: from my perspective so Michelle why don't you talk a little bit about about this day this um this little short looks at this one event on one day in Normandy in 2018 tell us how you even ended up at this event
3: it was it was the typical day for me on this shoot in that I woke up in the morning I got into the car was told to get into and I went to the place I was told to go to and a lot of the times I had really no idea what I was up for when the car doors open and I got out but I knew that I was going to translate something in two languages and on this day you Christian and half the team were on another shoot somewhere else and you sent me to La Barquette which is um, a set of locks in France so it's kind of like um, a mechanism to hold back water um, so I went with our friend Flo Bouchri and um, a couple of our of our guys, including your son Christian, who took the picture of me and Tom Rice that's featured also in the uh, in the documentary. So um, we got there. It, we were out in the middle of the fields, literally cows and horses running around. And here we are set up with a couple news trucks, if I remember correctly, who are also there to um, do some videoing. And um, the first thing I saw was off in the distance, and I could hear them come before I could see them, because these again are hedgerow rimmed roads, right? In Normandy, you don't have a lot of view off the side of the roads, but I could hear their shuffling, I could hear boots coming my way. And um, as they turned the corner and approached, I saw what I thought was gonna be a dozen men that turned into probably a couple hundred men and a few women um, included in in this group of people who are all dressed in 1944 military garb, American military garb, most of them. Uh, I found out later that for some of them, they were actually wearing real vintage um, uniforms and carrying real vintage items that our GIs would have carried back in on June 6, 1944. Some of them had reproductions that they were wearing, but what struck me was the look on their faces as they approached, they were so weary. It was by Normandy standards, a really hot day. And they had been walking from uh, Utah beach which was I think about 10 kilometers away, maybe six, seven miles away. In their full gear, carrying everything that they were carrying, retracing the steps of the Allied forces who also landed on Utah Beach on June 6, 1944. So they had been walking under a beating sun. They were very disorganized, kind of a, a ragtag bunch of men and a few women. I'll keep throwing that in. And as they arrived where we were, some other people, villagers from the nearby town of Carentan, turned up as well. And these were mostly women dressed again in period garb who had baskets full of apples and um, very modern water bottles, but we won't mention that, um, and things to give these men who were so exhausted. So they kind of had a picnic stop right where we were. And there wasn't much talking going on among them. They were, it felt like they were embedded with the ghosts of the soldiers who had come before them. There was a degree of respect and um. Pensiveness, contemplation in them. And so we started getting the footage that we needed. I spoke with a couple of them um, as they were kind of lounging in the grass around us. And then I heard the sound of a 1944 Jeep siren in the distance and this fabulous old Jeep rounded the same corner and in the front seat was who I now know was this wonderful veteran called Tom Rice with the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles. Um, And he got out of the Jeep, and I wish I could adequately describe these 100, 200 men, exhausted, lying in the grass, drinking their water, who saw the veteran appear, and it's like a new energy possessed them. And they got up, and they lined up into two immaculately straight lines as Tom Rice stepped out of the Jeep and then there was a moment when he looked around and i now know having learned more of his story that this field these um these it's not a dam what's it called a lock that these locks are exactly where he fought on june 6 1944 he had landed off target a couple kilometers north of there actually his entire stick of of, uh, paratroopers had been dispersed because they had been hit by flak and the plane was off target and going too fast and flying too low. And he would found a couple of his comrades in arms and they had made their way to these locks and um, part of the story that isn't in our short that I love is that in order to travel light he had taken out his most Prize possession from his knapsack. And that was a bottle of maple syrup that he brought from home with him, which he would never find again. Um, It's somewhere on the side of a road in Normandy, probably to this day. But Tom Rice got out of the Jeep and looked around and you could see the memory wash over his face. And Christian, this is something we saw, right, with so many of the veterans that we interviewed when they started talking about their experiences or revisiting the places where their experiences had happened, there's something that comes over their face. Their eyes almost glaze over and it's like they're going back in time. So I think these 200 men reenactors gave Tom just a few moments to get his bearings and compose himself and then he walked very slowly and regally between these two lines of reenactors who were dressed just as his comrades in arms would have been in at that point 76 74 years before. So um he always travels or frequently travels in Normandy with this wonderful French man by the name of Denis van den And he was there with him. And as Tom got to the end of this row of men, Denis started asking him questions about what his experiences had been right there. This man who at that point I think was 97 and would the next day jump out of a C47 at age 97 with a, a pair of a, paratrooper behind him, it was a tandem jump, so he didn't jump alone, but 97 years old jumping out of a plane and he plans on doing it in Coronado this summer for his 100th birthday. Um, He started asking Tom Rice these questions and the memories that he had, he remembers exactly how many stakes they planted in the ground to set up a perimeter and he remembers. um, tying metallic wire to each of the stakes and then hanging from that wire anything that would make noise, this was their kind of MacGyver version of security. As they were facing off with German forces who wanted to take the locks, because if they could open them, they could flood the land around it and they would stop the allies from getting to Carentan and Carentan was a really strategic town for them to reach so i stood there and listened to tom and again watched the expressions on his faces and um, his recollections were so precise that it felt like you were right there with him and then after and i need to add that he was also accompanied after the jeep arrived a couple buses arrived and there were a hundred active duty American soldiers who were following Tom on this day as he went from place to place where he had fought. So for these young men and women today to be able to be on the ground and hear these stories of a war that feels so almost mystical right in our minds and not so realistic anymore today to hear the details from the horse's mouth, um, I think was a really impactful thing for those soldiers as well. So that's what happened right there. Um, Do you want me to go on to the Exodus in Carleton?
1: Yeah, I mean, you guys hung out there for a while, Tom talked, and and then what happened
3: next? So then we all got in our vehicles again, him in his Jeep, the soldiers in their buses, and me in whatever car Flo and I were in, and we headed to the town of Carleton, which um, is maybe another five miles away, which the reenactors were gonna continue walking on foot um, with all of their stuff, equipment on their backs. And we were in Calenton for quite a while before our, our reenactors got there which gave me the really unique opportunity to stand on the sidewalk with so many people lined up waiting for the exodus to happen. I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about that. But as I'm standing on the sidewalk, a gentleman who owned a cheese store, because France, behind me pulled up a chair next to me and helped his father into it. This was a 95 year old gentleman who um, had been in Carentan the day that it was liberated. His name was Albert, Albert. And um, he was really shaky and teary and I kind of tried to surreptitiously take a picture of him and he said, you're taking a picture of me in French and I said, I just want to talk to you so I got down on my haunches next to him and heard his story of what life had been like in Carlton before it was liberated, and of he was I think 15 or 16, when the liberation happened and he. Um, the emotions coming from him as he recalled life under German occupation uh, was really important for me to fully understand what was going to come next. He is a beautiful soul, Alberes. He has now departed this world, but what an honor it was to be able to kind of sit at his feet and hold his hand and hear his stories of what it was like for a French young man um, who was entrusted with providing for his family to live through those years of deprivation and occupation. And then Another um, event happened, the spectators kind of stood back to open up the street, and I would say easily 100 inhabitants of Carleton modern day people these are not these are not um, very elderly people but they had dressed again in period garb and they reenacted what the french called the exodus what the Carenton people call the exodus which is people from the town at the time piling their entire lives up on horse-drawn um, carriages and on their backs and in whatever they could find to leave the city uh, before the fighting began, and it is—you'll see it—you'll see it in the short. It is such a beautiful, moving moment to see people looking like the French did back in 1944, leaving with all they could load onto their backs and onto their carriages and trying to get out of town because their lives were so threatened. And there were children in this parade. Um, the elderly, the young, people who probably spent an awful lot of time in the past few years gathering up all these items that look like authentic 1944 France in order to reenact this moment. And right behind them, with another sound of a Jeep siren, came these 200 reenactors. And now they were in formation. I don't know how many of them speak English, but they were chanting the military chants in English with strong accents as they walked past us on on the street, carrying the American flag. I looked down at Albert who was still sitting in the chair next to me and there are just tears rolling off of his cheeks as he relives the freeing of the town that was his all those years ago. And I I think that there were more men now among their ranks than there had been out in the fields. It just, it went on forever. And they passed us on the street to the main square. And then you'll see the beautiful footage in the short of them circling the square with people, the French people cheering them on, the people who had come before, who were in period garb as well, cheering them on as they would have been cheered on back in 1944 when the town was liberated. It It was like stepping, back in time with the the hindsight that allows for, I think, even greater appreciation of what that moment is. It was stepping back in time and understanding that I was standing on liberated French soil with people who spoke French, with people who were no longer suffering from the tyranny of nazi germany it was um, a life-altering moment for me i actually went back and wrote the article that this um, short is based on that night and then when christian asked for it i think probably a year later um, i kind of worked on it some more and in in between times i got to between those two times i got to speak more with tom um, i tracked him down online and he became the military and historical advisor For my book that deals in part with D Day, with June 6, 1944. And it retraces just a little bit, a little bit of his story. It really is aimed more to honor him than to retell his story. Uh, But a lot of the details in the book are actually Tom's. And he has read it cover to cover with the help of one of his friends who takes care of him out in Coronado, California. Um, and I'm just so, so, so honored that that day in Carenton and this grueling glory march on Carenton that it led to this kind of connection with a man who is the kind of hero that we won't be able to meet a whole lot in the years ahead. He went on from Normandy to fight. I wrote it down to fight in Mar- Market Garden in the Ardennes. He was wounded in Bastogne, and then he was part of the fighting around Eagle's Nest um, when they actually took Eagle's Nest later on.
1: Yeah, he's so, a remarkable man. So, can you
0: talk a little bit, Michelle? I mean, you've never worked on a documentary film before, correct? Correct. <laughs> so, what, what? So, you were you, you wrote you, you're the writer for Grueling Glory. Uh-huh. Can you talk about the process of that, and maybe the back and forth, the dialogue, you know, um, you and Christian had. You know, just what what that's like.
3: Yeah, the process. They're- There wasn't really a whole lot of back and forth right Christian because it was a it was an already written piece that was designed for the blog um, when it was released, then, but we did do a lot of back and forth with Christian and with our editor. um, Trying to figure out because I also wrote it and recorded it in French that's the other piece of this so we did a lot of. um, Uh, interacting with each other just about what footage to put with what parts of the story and then because translation, you have to take some liberties and rearrange some of the words and the thoughts, then when we did the French version we had to move some of the footage. Around as well, so it would match just right. That was kind of fun because Christian understands a lot of French now. Um, our editor does not, Bill Evil does not. Um, and so to try and tell him exactly where one thought ends in the French language and the next video needs to begin was a creative process in itself, I think. But um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so pleased that my little idea of putting still pictures with it turned into this because there's no. I mean, still versus movie, right? These are this is movie images so beautifully shot, and they just add another dimension to the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, you had a very, very special day, you know, and there there were, as I look at it, you know, like three different little elements to that. Um, it really, really remarkable. And I'm so thankful that you have the ability to articulate that. I mean, we don't we haven't talked about this here but it is true. You are an accomplished photographer, in my opinion. You have a very good eye. Um, and you had taken some of, you know, a lot of the photographs that we do use um, on our social media and stuff, you did take, because um, we didn't really have an official behind the scenes photographer that became you. And so you are so incredibly artistically gifted in so many ways. And, and you were just the right person to be there at that day, because you, uh, spoke both languages, you understood and or were aware and sensitive to the history. You could talk with the people that were there in their native language, um, and then you were able to recount all of that in writing in French and in English. Uh, so it it's we have a we've captured something this special day in your life uh, in a very uh, remarkable way. I wish that um, you had in when we were in France, you actually took your conversation with Albert and you had put it into a slideshow that you did share on uh on social media at the time and i mean i don't know that that still can be viewed but it was pretty powerful in itself just that little conversation with him yeah,
3: yeah. I think it's still on my Facebook somewhere. I can I can post it again uh, for anybody who wants to see it. Michelle Phoenix on Facebook. But yeah, <laughs> that, that, I think those two events on the same day really cemented that, that day as, as just spectacular in all the days that I was there and in all the wonderful interviews and encounters that happened. There was something about that one-two punch of Albert and Tom Rice of the French citizen and the American soldier, the American paratrooper that just really cemented that day in my memory.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite moments is what you talked about. My favorite moments in this little short uh, are um is when they come marching into Carenton and you can hear them in their American quote unquote. I'm using air quotes, American accents, counting off their steps and chanting. Uh it just I get chills when yeah. you see they have pulled themselves together and they're marching into town and
3: so proud. So proud. So proud. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and you know. They should be because not all of them marched the 10 miles from Utah beach or whatever it is. But I mean, it's a long March in very uncomfortable clothes, you know, on a lot of, you know, beaches and fields yeah. and all this other stuff. It's an accomplishment to do the exodus.
3: It is. And, and to them, it really is that the, the aura of honor that comes off of them, um, they're honoring their heroes in the same way that little kids wear their Marvel's heroes yes. suits, right? Only this time it's in the place where real history happened with real men who sacrificed and women who sacrificed their lives. And there's just something so um rare about that it's all honor all honor no no you know they don't get paid for it they don't get any recognition for it they come from all over europe we met some of them yeah they jumped we met some of them on whatever that alley what's that alley purple heart
1: lane Purple purple heart lane
3: purple heart lane and some of them were german and there were some who were dutch and they just come from all over europe so that they can step nearly literally into the shoes of these people who liberated their land
1: yeah that's super cool. You know, I don't want us to leave um, this podcast without you telling people the name of your book mm-hmm. um, because I want people to be able to find that.
3: Yeah. It's called Fragments of Light. I actually happen to have a copy sitting right next to me. That might be backwards on your screen, but <laughs> so this is what it looks like. Um, published by uh, HarperCollins, Thomas Nelson. And it's a dual timeline story. Part of it is uh, about a World War II hero who jumped over over Normandy on D-Day and was wounded, sent back home and disappeared two months later, trying to figure out what happened to him as his as his daughter um, um, approaches the end of her life. And then the other half of it is a woman who has just come through her own battle with breast cancer and is trying to make her life back into something she recognizes. And she decides for her best friend's sake that she needs to find out what happened to um, this man who jumped over Normandy. So it's a dual timeline story. Um, A lot of the places in Normandy are exactly the places I visited that I described as close to real as I could, as close to accurately as I could. Some of the people that we had um, in the documentary, their names appear in the book, too. There's Flo, there's Danny, there's all of those names that appear in there just to honor them as well, but it is a fictional story. It's not, it's not a biography. Awesome.
0: All right, that'll be your next movie.
3: <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> I dare I'm pretty... Christian. Someone
0: tell Christian she can't do it.
1: And then that's
0: whatever. right.
3: <laughs> that's the way it works, isn't it?
1: <laughs> that usually in the past has been how it works traditionally. But I will have to say, I think I am going to restrict myself to the documentary world. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm still trying to look, figure that out. That whole narrative world is a completely different animal.
0: It is. It is. A year from now, you're going to be rebranding again. <laughs> From documentary films to
1: whatever films.
0: Documentaries I'll
3: just make and movies first. <laughs> <That's
1: right. laughs> oh, goodness, That's who true. knows? Well, thank you, Michelle, for your creative gifts, sharing them with us. Um, you know, you've given us something uh, that I think will honor Tom and those that honor him. Uh, for quite a long time, and we're—if um, you want to be able to see Grueling Glory, uh, there is really only one way you can see Grueling Glory right now. I guess there's two. One is to see it at a film festival, and it's coming up in uh, at the end of January in Polson, Montana. That's where the Flathead Lake International Cinema Fest is, um, otherwise known as Flick Film Festival. Um, you can see it in Polson, Montana, or I'm going to make it available to our Patreon subscribers so uh, we can kind of do that privately in our Patreon portal. So if you've been thinking about becoming a Patreon supporter, now is a great time to do that in the next um, week or so. Um, we're going to be sharing that with our Patreon supporters so that they can be able to get the first look at that. Um And also I did, you know, take a bunch of really interesting things, um, videos and pictures when I was over in Normandy a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to be sharing those with our Patreon supporters as well. So this is a really good time to join Patreon. You're going to start getting a lot of really interesting stuff. So, uh, Jason, any questions for Michelle? Yeah, go ahead.
2: Actually, um, I just wanted to clarify the, um, if you want to go to Patreon, it's not patreon.com forward slash doc first podcast anymore, it is patreon.com forward slash doc first. So, documentary first, sorry. So, we've updated that slug, um, so you can find it that way. Say it one more time. It's patreon.com forward slash documentary first. There you go. Excellent.
3: Can I just say, can I just jump in to say thank you for hiring me (laughs) to be a translator and i jumped into something that i didn't know i had no idea what was going to be and those were truly some of the greatest memories and encounters of my life so i'm so grateful for the opportunity to be a part of it
1: well, it was our pleasure and, you know, we both share a common faith in God and we do believe that he brought us together. And, uh, it's clear to me that, um, you know, we were supposed to do this together, you know, for many different reasons. And so, I'm. Um, it's been a pleasure to work with you, Michelle, and thank you so much for, you know, being part of our little team.
3: It's been my joy. <laughs>
0: Christian, any final updates you want to point out? Any reminders for our listeners?
1: Yes, actually. We are going to start adding a new segment to Documentary First. Dun, 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 dun. dun. Yeah. Uh, We got to come up with some sort of catchy theme song or something, but this is going to be um, your Documentary First documentary recommendation segment. I don't know. Or my favorite documentary of the week or something like that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll work on it. Got to workshop that. But uh, I saw a documentary this week that I just have to talk about. um, And it it was a total surprise. I was flipping around Netflix and it popped up um, called Bathtubs Over Broadway. Hadn't heard anything about it before. And uh, I was, you know, very curious and quite skeptical. um, But I was one over instantly like in the first five minutes and um it is now skyrocketed to one of my favorite documentaries um jason i told you to pull it up earlier did you pull it up can you read the um you know its little log line or whatever you got there
2: yeah so it's a late night comedy writer stumbles upon a hilarious hidden world of corporate entertainment and finds an unexpected connection to his fellow man
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> so uh the writer is the head comedy writer for David Letterman. Uh years ago he was in charge of going to record stores finding these old records that you know uh David Letterman would sort of make fun of on the air and it developed a habit for him uh, an interest in finding these really unique off the beaten path records. And so this turned into an obsession for him which uh, is, I mean, I'm not going to spoil it. All I'm going to say is, um, the, the documentary gets better and better and better as it goes along. And I was in tears at the end, a tears of joy. It's so heartwarming, hilariously funny, completely obscure. Um, and I really related with him, with the writer, the filmmaker, uh, because near the end, what he was absorbing as he was processing this experience, because it was a journal of discovery, just like the girl who wore freedom was for me, um, is he was taking note of what had happened to him, you know, uh, um, through his, you know, through his journey. And, and it really was about the people in the community community that he had built. And that was what was so rewarding for him. And it all started because of this really unique, bizarre interest that he had that he decided to pursue. So, um, Definitely a documentary worth watching. And uh, next week we're gonna have another one. We're gonna start every week. We're gonna come with a new documentary to recommend. Um, I have one other thing. Um, I Sandy Gordon was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and she and I have been talking a little bit more since then. She texted me the other day out of the blue and told me that I had to get this book. And this book is called The Movie Business Book by Jason E. Squire. And it's a book that they're requiring at DePaul Film Schools to uh, of somatic arts, and she said it was just, um, I mean, it kind of blew her mind, uh, what she was reading in here. Um, and she was saying that it's not really written by one guy, uh, but one guy put together from a whole bunch of different experts in the film business, um, and you know, he said it's written, you know, there are articles in there from distributors, marketers, studio executives, agents, managers, people that handle the home videos of uh, purchasing and the airplane purchasing. Um, and so she says um, it talks a lot about the inherent costs that movie, most movie producers factor in the lawyers and the accountants to make sure that they keep the distribute distributors in check. Uh, She said, it's a very depressing book about how hard it is to make money in movies if it's not a Marvel movie. (laughs) So she said, (laughs) fair warning. Um, She said, one of the most fascinating things is that this book was updated in 2019, and it's all about how everything is moving toward big releases going straight to streaming or simultaneously to theater release, Um, but the theaters were fighting for it, and that was before covid um so anyway i immediately ordered the book i asked her if she would come on the show and she's like well i haven't even finished reading the book and i was like well we need to do a book report so hopefully i will talk her into uh to coming back on but yeah i ordered the book uh you guys might want to check it out too we could kind of all read it together so um and and that's about it from me uh next week i think we're gonna have jeff kurt necron um maybe bill leeple maybe jason hoban i'm trying to get the band back together so we'll see how successful i am awesome
0: well hey michelle thanks again for being on and and sharing with us Uh, jason we never really thank you at the end
3: that's fair there's no no reason to thank me it's uh, okay
0: yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) um but i do want to thank our listeners for listening to documentary first